Well, in just a few moments, I'm going to talk to you about how Jesus exchanges our despair for hope. And we're going to use a story written in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, verses 21 to 34. So hear these words of the Lord. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was there. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. But when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped. And she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. So he turned around in the crowd and he asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you? His disciples answered. And yet you can ask, Who touched me? Which is a way of saying, Dude, everyone, everyone is touching you. But Jesus continued to look, and in verse 31, he said, Who touched me? Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, kind of like Jairus, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. Jesus then said to her, verse 34, Daughter, your faith has healed you. That's interesting, by the way. It wasn't that Jesus, quote-unquote, healed her. It was her faith that somehow activated the power of Jesus to flow out of him and into her. That's interesting. Then, he continued on and said, Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. This is the word of God for the people of God, and we say, thanks be to God. Now the story continues with the second half of the scene that we opened with, where Jairus and his 12-year-old daughter, sitting at death's door, needed Jesus to come to that house and rescue her. So what we have in this story is a Mark sandwich, We've got Jairus on the front end and Jairus on the back end as the bread. But in our moment together, I want to focus on the meat in the middle with this woman. But before we get there, I want to tell you about a time that our family took the train. It wasn't one of those fun, like, old school trains. It was the dark train. And I remember this particular journey because we were downtown with our whole family, 
at that really busy one in downtown Dallas by the Arts District where three different lines come and go and intersect. And so we were waiting on the platform, seeing this train go and this train arrive, back and forth and back and forth they went. This is around the time that our girls were starting to kind of come aware of how things were laid out in the Metroplex. They knew downtown Dallas because we had spent enough time down there, and they knew it because, hello, this is where all the tall buildings were. So they knew we were in downtown Dallas, which is why this one particular train really confused them. You see, a train rolled in, and on the marquee, it said DFW Airport. And we could see their wheels start to turn as one of them looked up at that train that said DFW Airport, but then looked at the tall buildings, knowing that she was in downtown Dallas. She looked at the train again, and looks at us and says, this isn't the airport, this is downtown Dallas. The airport is like a long way away that way, because we see the big planes coming in, but why did it say that? So this is our opportunity to explain to them that as we stood here on the platform in downtown Dallas, every one of those marquees that you see on the train are for the destination. It's for the direction that they're headed. So as we stand here in downtown Dallas, if we were to hop onto that train and ride it from stop after stop after stop after stop after stop, we would wind up at its terminus, DFW International Airport. So, with that story in mind, I want to do a thought experiment with you. I want you to imagine that all of us hop onto one of those dark train cars and we pile in together just as we experience this huge disruption known as the coronavirus pandemic. We are not only together in this train car, we are with our whole country and our whole world piled in together in this train car. And the train begins to move, and we find ourselves a few weeks ago at our first stop. And the first stop is the stop of disruption. Schools begin to close. The professional sports begin to shut down. We're told we can't gather in this size of a group, or this size of a group, or this size of a group. And we begin to feel the disruption of life as we know it. This was the first stop. We're all in this train car together, trying to reckon with our new normal. Then the train moves, and we find ourselves at the second stop. The second stop is fear, because you can only experience so much disruption, so much destabilizing um, presence in your life before you start to get anxious and fearful and afraid. And so what fear does is it kind of sends us into the next stop, the third stop, which is desperation, right? You've heard that the next result of fear is either fight, where you hold on and try to make sense of it, or it's flight, where you just hit the panic button, the eject button, and you go off the rail. At that third stop is desperation. And I think that's where we currently find ourselves, not only in this train car of our own community, but in our global community as a whole. And it's our job as Christians to alert the world in our train car to 
the railroad switch. Okay? Maybe you don't know what a railroad switch is by name, but you certainly know what it is once I describe it to you. The train can continue on the track ahead toward its final destination unless we hit the switch and it locks us into that other track that begins to veer us off in another direction, to the right or to the left. We are at this third stop, this desperation stop, and our train has a choice to either veer off into despair or to continue down the track amidst all evidence to the contrary that we're actually headed toward a good end. And that word for us is hope. We can choose despair or we can choose hope. Now, if you were to look up hope in the dictionary, you would see it really as a synonym for wishing, right? I hope you have a good day. Hope you have a good dinner. Hope you have a good fill in the blank. There's a lot of uncertainty baked within it. That's not what we're talking about when we're talking about Christian hope. Christian hope is not wishing, it's expecting. Christian hope expects that renewal is not only possible at the end of the line, but that it's promised. Christian hope doesn't let the darkness of our present desperation overshadow the light of what's promised. Let me say that again. Christian hope doesn't let the darkness of our present desperation overshadow the light of what's promised at the end of the line. Put simply, Christian hope is the expectation that God will do what he promised. Now, in our train car, I'm convinced that the marquee on the front of that car, just like my girl saw in the dark station that said DFW Airport, I'm convinced what's written on the front of the train car in which we find ourselves are these words, all things new. The reason why I'm convinced that we can stay on this train track ending in all things new is at the end of the Christian Bible in Revelation, Jesus appears and says, Behold, pay attention, wake up, I'm making all things new. But we've got to remember that that train track of hope may be a long way off with a lot of stops in between. Every day is a stop and a temptation to veer off into despair. But I'm here to tell you, if we could all be in this together, we can expect that God will get us all the way to the end. Now, our Mark sandwich. If you're just joining us, we read a passage in Mark chapter 5 in which Mark places the story of two drastically different people on two drastically different ends of the societal spectrum. And the bread of this sandwich is a man named Jairus. The meat of this sandwich is an unnamed woman with an issue of bleeding, a kind of bleeding that is 12 years long. 
these two very different individuals have one thing in common. They both find themselves at desperation station. They both have every excuse in the book to veer off into despair. But instead, when desperation starts to crowd in around them, they choose to reach out toward Jesus. If you log off and don't hear anything else, can I leave you with this? When desperation crowds in, there's always room to reach out. When desperation crowds in this evening, tomorrow morning, and the next day, there is always room to reach out. Mark puts these two stories together with two drastically different people to show us that irrespective of who you are or what situation in which you find yourself, there's always room to reach out. The first guy we're introduced to is named Jairus. And it's interesting that Jairus is a name. On the other end of the spectrum is a woman that doesn't get a name. Now, Jairus is a man which instantly puts him at the top of the heap. He's already got privilege baked into his existence in Jesus' world because men were the ones that had all these opportunities afforded to them. Women did not. In fact, we also learn that this woman is destitute. She has no opportunity afforded her because she spent everything she had on a bunch of quack doctors, and instead of getting better, her condition has actually gotten worse. But Jairus, on the other hand, is a man of means. He has a home. Presumably, he has a family with servants. We know this because he's got a 12-year-old daughter that's sick and laying at death's door. This woman is also, through the whole lifetime of Jairus' daughter, experiencing a kind of hemorrhage, a kind of bleeding that just won't quit. We also see that they refuse to let their situation gear them into despair. They're going to do something about it. They're going to reach out to Jesus. What's interesting is that Jairus breaks rank. He was essentially on the board of directors of the local religious synagogue. He was a well-respected man on the inside of that religious community, the heartbeat of their community. This woman, on the other hand, was on the complete outside of this community. We know that bodily discharges were a no-no in Leviticus 15. While they were a natural part of life, they precluded you from being involved in the religious ceremonies and rituals. So what this means is that this woman has been bleeding for 12 years which means that this woman is suffering physically. Her literal life force is draining out of her. She's also suffering relationally. While Jairus is able to be a respected member on the board of this synagogue, she is never allowed into the synagogue. She's suffering relationally because if she was married, she couldn't touch her husband, and her husband couldn't touch her because her uncleanness would transfer to him through touch. If she had kids, she couldn't hug her children for 12 years. She's suffering relational isolation. 
she's not only suffering physically and relationally, she's also suffering economically. Mark tells us she spent everything she had, like I mentioned a moment ago, and you can imagine what these treatments would look like in the first century. They would not have been pretty. In fact, they were so ugly that it actually made her worse and not better. All of this kind of isolation and suffering must have also meant that she was suffering psychologically. She must have internalized all this and considered her own self a walking pollution. Because after 12 years of no one being able to be around you, certainly you start to believe that they may not even want me, even if I could. While they're on two different ends of the society spectrum, both of them refuse to choose despair. Instead, they reach out in hope. Jairus falls at the feet of Jesus, and he does what he can do when all else has failed. I love what pastor and author in Manhattan, Tim Keller, says. He says, you don't really know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Can I say that again? You don't really know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. It would have been wild for a respectable Jairus to lay prostrate at the feet of this revolutionary rabbi, healer, and teacher, Jesus. He broke ranks with the religious establishment because he realized that Jesus was all he had left. I started wondering, is Jesus my first stop or my last resort? Is Jesus my first stop when desperation and panic and hurt and fear come in? Or is he my last resort? You know, I love Jairus' story because even if Jesus was his last resort, he was still able to bring everything he had and lay it at the feet of Jesus. I want you to know that you have permission to bring all of that fear and anxiety and desperation to the feet of Jesus, whether he's your first stop or your last resort. Know that he is near to the brokenhearted and those who are desperate. At the neighborhood church, we say that we pray, believing that God can, we ask that God will, and we trust that he loves us no matter what. We pray, believing God can, asking that God will, and trusting that God loves us no matter what. I follow a prayer liturgy that some of us in the neighborhood church were taught by a man named Brian Zahn, and over the years, I've years. It's only been like two years, but I've adapted it over time to kind of insert some passages of scripture that really mean a lot to me. And within that prayer liturgy, there's a space to offer all of your cares and concerns to pray for your family. And so I inserted this one passage, you might write it down, Psalm 33:22. I inserted this passage after my prayers for my family. And that psalm 33.22 says this, May your unfailing love surround us, even as we put our hope in you. It's a way that reminds me that I pray believing that God can. I trust that Jesus can actually do something about my situation. Then I pray asking that he actually will, but then I trust that no matter what happens, that he loves me no matter what. You see, the thing about taking that train toward the end game of hope is to remember that it may be a long 
journey. And it may be fraught with a lot of stops of unanswered prayers. But we trust that the end game, that all things actually work together with good of those who are called according to his purpose. We know that his faithful love surrounds us, even as we're waiting and hoping in him. So, Jairus laid out at the feet of Jesus, and Jesus, with that crowd, starts to move quickly to Jairus' house. you got a 12-year-old girl at that doorstep, so they've got to move and move and move until Jesus feels power draining out of him. Because somewhere on the bottom of this crowd, in and around people's feet, in and around people's ankles, is the woman who could not touch anyone, who could not be touched by anyone, but is a woman that sees an opportunity to not choose despair, but to choose hope, to get herself at the feet of Jesus, just like Jairus, because she believes that Jesus can actually do something about her situation, so much so that she ain't even got to talk to him. She's just got to get the tip of his jacket. And that's what she does. And so what happens is she feels in her bones that she's healed. Y'all said, I just felt it in my gut that God answered my prayers. I just knew his peace washed over me. This woman felt the fountain of blood as the King James Version tells it dry up. I think this woman is the patron saint of a mantra that we have at the neighborhood church. Here's our mantra. You do what you can, and let God do what you can't. This woman is the patron saint of doing what you can, and letting God do what you can't. I love this. She is going to take every opportunity she has to get everything, all her hope, at the feet of Jesus. Because if I could just reach out to him, he might actually do something about it. This is why Jesus is confident enough to say, it's your faith that saves you. It's that confident hope and expectation that activated God's life and power within her. But Jesus didn't know that yet. You remember in the story that we read that as the crowd is pulsing and pushing around him, Jesus stops in the middle of their hurried trek to Jairus' house. He stops everything and says, who touched me? And the disciples are like, dude, are you serious? Everyone. That's the answer. Everyone is touching you. Which, by the way, is really interesting. Can I just say this? Not everyone who touched Jesus was healed. I think this is just something we've got to sit with. This woman touched Jesus' cloak and was healed, but everyone was touching Jesus, and yet not everyone experienced this healing. Which is why I think we need to trust that he loves us no matter what. And why we need to trust that what's written on top of our train is all things new. To where if this stop is not made new today, trust that it will be made new in tomorrow. That tomorrow when Jesus comes and renews all things. But Jesus stops and begins to ask this question, who touched me? Now, the woman is on the ground terrified. This woman did not want to be seen. 
She's terrified because she doesn't want Jesus to rebuke her or to do like everybody else did and kick her away to the curb. One of the interesting outcomes of this social distancing and self-quarantining in our homes, maybe you're like me, you look out the window or you spend a lot of time outside and you just start to see people coming out the woodwork. I mean, how many new cyclists and how many new runners have you seen in your neighborhood? Yesterday I took a long walk uh, around our neighborhood and I saw people in their front yards playing badminton and kicking a soccer ball and tossing a football because they're like me, right? You start just grabbing anything you have in the house, looking for your ball club, and you start to get outdoors. And so about 50 times in the last two weeks, I turned to Amy and I said, have you ever seen them? Where do they come from? And the answer is, well, they've been here the whole time. We just haven't seen them. I think what's really fascinating and what I love so much about Jesus is his ability to see, and I mean really see, people. And so what Jesus does in asking this question is not to embarrass her or rebuke her. He's going to see her probably for the first time in 12 years that somebody has seen him. Jesus sees her. He's actively looking for her so that he can not only provide the miracle of healing her physically, he wants to provide a second miracle of healing her relationally, economically, to give her back to the community so she can have more opportunities and to heal her psychologically so that others might see her too. One of the things that Jesus does is see the unseen people in our community. And how he sees her matters. He says, daughter, daughter, daughter of Israel, daughter of the true and living God. When everyone else labeled her, when everybody else refused to interact with her, Jesus wants to see her, and he calls her daughter. And if he calls her daughter, that forces the rest of the crowd to see her too. The thing about Jesus is that when he sees people, he invites all of those around him who follow him to see them through Jesus' eyes, to see those people that you would not have seen otherwise. In this pandemic, when have you actually saw the uninsured, the undocumented, the unemployed, the underemployed, those who are desperate for food and touch and interaction, those who are isolated, when have we seen them? It's as if he's saying, these are daughters and sons kicked out to the margins of society. I'm calling them family. Will you call them brother and sister? Because if she's a daughter, that means she's a sister to us. What we say at the neighborhood church, is that Jesus has this proclivity to continually rezone our neighborhoods so that everyone we encounter becomes a neighbor to be seen and loved as ourselves. He calls her daughter of the living God, daughter of Israel. And if she's a daughter, then that means that she is our sister. He's inviting us in this train car together to see the unseen, and to see them reaching out to Jesus. And we should be inviting them to do the same. Who is Jesus inviting you to see? 
in this season that maybe you haven't been? Would you join him in praying and interceding on behalf of the Father so that they would know that they are beloved, that they would know that they are a part of this family? Now, he also blesses her. He says, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. That word peace is a loaded biblical term for shalom, a flourishing. Jesus has not only healed her physically, he's healed her emotionally, economically, relationally, psychologically. He has set her back into a place of flourishing where all things are new. But it's around that time that Jairus gets word that because of this interruption, because of this pause, his daughter, that was at death's door, has passed through it, and she's dead. But Jesus still goes, and Jesus raises her up and restores her to Jairus. Mark puts these two sandwiched stories together so that we would see that God's love and transforming power is irrespective of the boundaries or borders that we put on people. You could be a respected man and member of society. You could be an unnamed woman with no hope or help. But we're invited to see that there actually is hope and there is the ability to reach out. And that's the invitation for you. When desperation touches your doorstep, wherever you are on that social spectrum, you can reach out. Reach out to Jesus in prayer, believing that God can asking that God will, and trusting that he loves you no matter what, reaching out to the community of faith that can help be the hands and feet of Jesus when you are desperate and in need. And know that when your touch doesn't bring healing, that this is just one stop on a long journey of hope toward all things new. I want to close with this story of a day that desperation touched Amy and I early in our relationship together. She had a family member who was very young that died of cancer. It was a hard season. It was especially hard because we had not experienced the death of someone we loved for a long time. And this one hit really deeply. And at the end of her life, this family member lived in the country. And so the funeral service was performed out in the country. And then she was laid to rest in a cemetery out in the country in this beautiful rolling hill overlooking a pond. And I remember the long drive back down those country roads in Amy's old Honda Civic, and we just let it out. We were both bawling in tears, allowing desperation to kind of crowd in. But then, a song that had been playing in the background automatically for the first time just kind of surfaced and we heard the words of the chorus repeated over and over. And the words were these, Rescue is coming. I will never forget that juxtaposition of deep despair and grief but the willingness together to reach out to Jesus and remember that the darkness of our present will not overshadow the light of God's promise. 
that rescue is coming. That though we taste death and sickness and hurt now, there is an expiration date for these things. For Jesus will appear and say, Behold, pay attention, I'm making all things new. This is our choice. We find ourselves in desperation station, but instead of moving on into despair, where we continue as God's people together toward hope, reaching out to Jesus and helping others to do the same. There's always room to reach out. Reach out to brothers and sisters here virtually. Reach out to me. Reach out to Jesus. We're in this together, but we're all headed toward all things new together as well. So may you remember that there is always room to reach out. May you journey on in hope, confident that the one who promised to make all things new will see his promise through. And may you leave this moment assured of God's presence with you and emboldened by the transforming power of the Holy Spirit within you. May you go in his peace to love and serve a desperate world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.